This e-multiple sclerosis review podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. I think pregnancy planning should be discussed with all women of childbearing age with multiple sclerosis when they're seen in the clinic. Even when choosing an initial therapy for MS, physicians and patients should consider the potential for and timing of pregnancy planning. If a woman is already on an MS therapy when planning pregnancy, the physician should consider the risks to the fetus as well as the risks of disease reactivation upon stopping treatment with the timing of DMT discontinuation before pregnancy depending on the specific therapy. Minimizing relapses in pregnancy and the postpartum period. Welcome to E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. What can pregnancy planning do to reduce disease relapses? What are the risk factors associated with relapses postpartum? What do clinicians need to know to better ensure the health and safety of both expectant mother and newborn child? That's what we're here to talk about today with Dr. Kristen Crisco from the University of California, San Francisco. For Dr. Crisco's disclosures, as well as additional CME information, please go to our website, emultiplesclerosisreview.org and click on the Volume 3, Issue 2 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Crisco, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Our first learning objective focuses on how pregnancy planning and management strategies can moderate the risk of MS relapse in pregnancy and postpartum. So start us out in the clinic, if you would, please, doctor, the patient scenario. So my patient was a 29-year-old woman with a 10-year history of relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. She presented for routine follow-up because she's interested in discussing pregnancy planning. She previously had highly active MS with several relapses while previously treated with injectable therapies. Due to this, she was switched to natalizumab two years ago and has done very well on this therapy without relapses. Unfortunately, she has residual disability from prior relapses with leg weakness, spasticity, and imbalance, with an expanded disability status scale score of 4 indicating disability. Additionally, her MRI shows severe burden of disease, including spinal cord lesions. She's interested in having her first child, but is worried about the impact on her MS and how her treatment may affect her child. So what she's asking you about really is pregnancy planning. She wants to know about the potential effects of pregnancy on the course of her MS. What do you tell her, doctor? I tell all my patients some of the general information we have about pregnancy and MS. So overall, relapse rates tend to decline during pregnancy, and pregnancy appears to be protective on relapses on average, which is reassuring. Several older studies have shown that there is an increased risk of relapses postpartum, though, with up to 30% having a relapse in the first three months postpartum. However, a newer study published in 2020 by Dr. Langer-Gould reviewed in the newsletter found that postpartum relapse risk may not be as high as previously reported on average. However, this might not apply to individual women who have more active MS. And her risk of relapse postpartum? Risk factors for a postpartum relapse include the presence of disability before pregnancy and having relapses in the one to two years before pregnancy or during pregnancy itself. Although reassuringly, pregnancy does not appear to have a negative long-term effect on outcomes for women with MS. This particular patient's risk of relapse, what are her current status and her past history suggest to you? In this particular patient, she's on natalizumab, which is a highly effective therapy for MS, 
and that itself can influence her risk of relapses associated with pregnancy. We know from studies in and outside of pregnancy that natalizumab can cause disease reactivation several weeks to months after stopping. If she were to stop natalizumab to plan for her pregnancy, she would be at increased risk of relapse during and after pregnancy. This was clearly shown in the study published in 2018 by Dr. Portacio reviewed in the newsletter, where women discontinuing natalizumab had a much higher risk of relapse during and after pregnancy compared to women who were untreated or on injectables before pregnancy. Additionally, her higher level of disability before pregnancy also places her in a higher risk of postpartum relapse than the average patient. So she risks disease reactivation if she stops her natalizumab. But is it safe for her to continue natalizumab during her pregnancy? What are the potential negative effects on the infant? So overall, it appears that natalizumab does not seem to increase the risk of miscarriage. Although with later exposure in pregnancy, there could be a slightly elevated risk of malformation. However, there are quite limited data available about the use of natalizumab before and after pregnancy, such that it's hard to understand this risk with certainty. With third trimester exposure to natalizumab, there have been several reports that infants can be born with hematological abnormalities like low platelets or anemia. As discussed in the study by Dr. Portacio reviewed in the newsletter, Relapse risk is higher in patients who have their last natalizumab infusion before pregnancy. So to decrease her risk of relapses, the last infusion should be given after she becomes pregnant. Given the increased risk of relapse with natalizumab discontinuation in this particular patient, one could consider extended interval dosing of natalizumab, such as with every six to eight week infusions during pregnancy to limit the fetal exposure with the last infusion around 34 weeks gestational age to reduce the woman's risk of a rebound relapse during pregnancy. This would be followed by early reinitiation postpartum to avoid a postpartum relapse. However, when using natalizumab through pregnancy, the infant would need to be closely monitored by a pediatrician after birth due to the risk of hematological abnormalities that in some cases have even required transfusion of the baby. I would discuss these risks and benefits with the patient, but unfortunately, there is some degree of uncertainty, and we need to study more exposed pregnancies to better understand risks associated with the use of natalizumab in pregnancy. What about other treatment options? What can be done to decrease this patient's risk of relapse while also limiting potential risk to the infant? So another option would be to switch her MS treatments before pregnancy discontinuing natalizumab and starting a safer option before pregnancy, but that would have to be a strong enough treatment to prevent disease reactivation relapses associated with stopping natalizumab. So then let me ask you, Dr. Crisco, based on your experience, what course of action would you suggest to this patient? In my experience, a good option for this patient could be the use of B-cell depleting agents like rituximab, which can be used off-label for treatment of MS. Before pregnancy, I would suggest she switch to rituximab with the first rituximab infusion about four weeks after the last natalizumab dose with the goal of preventing a disease reactivation relapse. I would then advise she wait at least one to two months after the last rituximab infusion to attempt conception. Although the FDA recommends a 12-month washout before pregnancy, we and others feel this duration is not necessary. Why is that? Based on its half-life, rituximab should be eliminated after three to four months, but continues to have biological effect on reducing relapse risk for another six to 12 months. Additionally, 
large immunoglobulin molecules like rituximab do not cross the placenta in the first trimester. So infusion one to two months before pregnancy may be safe as it should be eliminated from her system by the second trimester when immunoglobulins begin to cross the placenta. Rituximab does not appear to increase the risk of miscarriages or congenital abnormalities, although again, data are limited on pregnancy exposures, and so more data are needed. Studies have shown that rituximab during pregnancy can decrease the B-cell count in the newborn, and that tends to recover by six months of age, although that has not been shown when the infusion is given before pregnancy. Although further data are needed on safety, this approach may balance the risks and benefits to the mother and the infant. Anything to say about ocrelizumab? Although ocrelizumab is a similar B-cell therapy approved for MS, there's less data available on pregnancy exposure to date. Although once more data becomes available, that might be another good option. Thank you for that case and discussion, Dr. Crisco. Let's take a moment now to wrap up this case by reviewing our learning objective. So, pregnancy planning and management strategies to moderate the risk of MS relapse in pregnancy and postpartum. What are the key things our listeners need to know? So first, I think pregnancy planning should be discussed with all women of childbearing age with multiple sclerosis when they're seen in the clinic. Even when choosing an initial therapy for MS, physicians and patients should consider the potential for and timing of pregnancy planning. Even if there are no immediate plans for pregnancy, therapies with risk of disease reactivation upon discontinuation, such as natalizumab or also fingolimod, may be avoided in those contemplating pregnancy. If a woman is already on an MS therapy when planning pregnancy, the physician should consider the risk to the fetus as well as the risks of disease reactivation upon stopping treatment with the timing of DMT discontinuation before pregnancy depending on the specific therapy. Certain therapies like B-cell depleting agents, for instance rituximab used off-label, can be used one to two months before pregnancy to decrease the risk of disease reactivation to protect against disease activity before and during pregnancy, although further study of the safety of this approach is needed. Finally, the majority of women with MS can stop their disease-modifying therapy during pregnancy itself, as this period is protective against relapse, although decisions should be individualized based on risk factors for relapses during and after pregnancy in each woman. And we'll return with Dr. Kristen Crisco from the University of California, San Francisco, in just a moment. COVID-19. Some people have said it's changed everything. But one thing that hasn't changed is our need to get timely and, most importantly, accurate information. That's why we created our COVID-19 Keeping Up With a Moving Target programs. It's a weekly webinar and podcast series hosted by Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It's updated information from the front lines of COVID-19 research and practice, and it's answers from the experts to your most important questions. COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target, is CME and CE accredited and provided free of charge. For more information, go to covid19.dkbmed.com. Thank you, and please stay safe. Welcome back to this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Kristen Crisco from the University of California, San Francisco, about pregnancy planning. Now let's turn to our second learning objective, which is about the risk factors for postpartum MS relapses and the modifiable factors that can prevent them. So uh, once again, if you would please, Dr. Crisco, take us to the clinic. Sure. So next I have a 23-year-old woman with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis 
with disease for two years, who presents for routine follow-up now during the third trimester of pregnancy. She was treated with glutirabine acetate before pregnancy, but had two relapses and several new lesions on MRI brain in that year before pregnancy. She conceived on glutirabine acetate and stopped when she had a positive pregnancy test. At baseline, she has some mild disability and has severe burden of disease on her MRI. She's currently 30 weeks gestational age and would like to discuss postpartum management of her MS. How would you evaluate her risk of postpartum relapse? The fact that she had relapses in the year before pregnancy places her in a higher risk category for postpartum relapses. The presence of mild disability before pregnancy also increases her risk of postpartum relapses compared to if she had no disability. These are the main risk factors for postpartum relapses that have been identified in several studies, including in the recently published study by Dr. Langer-Gould that was reviewed in the newsletter. Although these factors put her in a higher risk category, we don't know the exact risk of a postpartum relapse for an individual patient, and it's difficult to predict. MRI monitoring postpartum could be helpful to identify subclinical inflammatory activity, especially if she's not on MS treatment, to help better understand this risk. Gadolinium-based agents could be given postpartum as they're compatible with breastfeeding with very little transfer of gadolinium into breast milk, and even if present, there would be very little absorption. Some do advise pumping and discarding breast milk for 24 hours after gadolinium, although that's likely not necessary. Aside from medications, what could she do to decrease her risk of postpartum relapse? Would breastfeeding help? Yeah, so fortunately, breastfeeding, particularly exclusive breastfeeding without use of regular formula, has been associated with a substantially decreased risk of postpartum relapses. So for her, I would definitely recommend that she breastfeed if she's interested. Breastfeeding also has significant overall health benefits to the infant and her own health and well-being. As discussed in the newsletter, a recent meta-analysis published in 2020 showed that breastfeeding is associated with a 40% reduction in the rate of a postpartum relapse. The newest study evaluating breastfeeding by Dr. Langer-Gould, also discussed in the newsletter, found that the benefits of breastfeeding were seen for exclusive breastfeeding in the first six months postpartum. Partial breastfeeding doesn't appear to have the same benefit, and the effects of breastfeeding likely wear off later in the postpartum year when solids are introduced into the infant's diet. And now what about medications? Is there anything for her to use while breastfeeding that's safe for the newborn and that can also help reduce her risk of MS relapses? So this is a really new and exciting area of research. The study by Dr. Langer-Gould reviewed in the newsletter showed that injectable therapies like glutirumer acetate, which this patient was on before pregnancy, might not decrease the risk of postpartum relapses in the first year after delivery. This may be since injectable therapies like glutirumer acetate and the interferon betas are only modestly effective treatments for MS, and they can take up to six months to achieve full effectiveness. In their study, the women tended to start treatment several months after delivery, which may be why they didn't find benefit. Both glutirumer acetate and interferon beta injectable therapies are likely compatible with breastfeeding, with low likelihood of transfer into breast milk due to the large molecular weight of these drugs. While the injectables are likely safe while breastfeeding, they may not provide much protection against early postpartum relapses. 
The study conducted by Dr. Portacio reviewed in the newsletter found that early resumption of higher efficacy therapies in the first month postpartum was, on the other hand, effective in decreasing the risk of postpartum relapses. And what about rituximab, doctor? We know it's not approved for use in MS, but is it effective? And is there evidence that it's safe for both the mother and the infant? So we've talked about rituximab in the prior case, and it is a treatment that's effective for preventing relapses and reducing MRI lesions in MS, even though it's not approved for MS. Monoclonal antibody-based therapies like rituximab may be safe to use while breastfeeding and can be considered in women with higher risk of postpartum relapses like this patient, given her disability at baseline and her high disease activity in the year before pregnancy. Rituximab and other immunoglobulin-based drugs are large molecules with low expected transfer into breast milk. They also have poor oral bioavailability, meaning that even if there's some drug in the breast milk, it's expected that the infant would not absorb much of this. Additionally, a recently published study reviewed in the newsletter demonstrated low breast milk concentrations of rituximab in women who were treated with rituximab while breastfeeding, suggesting that not a lot of rituximab gets to the breast milk. The caveat is that drug transfer may be higher in the first two weeks postpartum when the milk is in the colostrum or transitional phase, so it's probably best to wait at least two weeks postpartum to consider rituximab. Additionally, some of the pre-medications we give to prevent infusion reactions like diphenhydramine could transfer to breast milk, and it's ideal to discard the breast milk for the first one to two days after the infusion before resuming breastfeeding due to those other drugs. In the study of infants who breastfed after rituximab, we didn't find any serious infections or developmental concerns, although only four infants were followed to 8 to 12 months. Further study of longer-term safety in more infants is needed, but using rituximab while breastfeeding could be considered in women who have a higher risk of postpartum relapses after discussing these risks and benefits. A hypothetical question, doctor. Let's say that this mother receives rituximab and she continues breastfeeding. How should that infant be monitored? So there's very little data available to guide us on this question, but the pediatrician should be advised of the maternal rituximab, and the infant should be sure to have the routine checkups that all infants would do with monitoring for infections, growth, and development. The pediatrician might consider checking the infant's B-cell count to see if there is any effect of the rituximab in breast milk on the infant's B-cells, although there's no data available to guide this. The pediatrician should also be aware of the treatment when giving vaccinations, although routine vaccines are still recommended, although if the infant's B-cells happen to be low, the pediatrician might consider delaying vaccination. More study is definitely needed to better understand this. Thank you for that case and discussion, Dr. Crisco. Let's wrap things up now by revisiting our learning objective, which is to explain the risk factors for postpartum MS relapses and the modifiable factors that can prevent them. What are the most important things our listeners need to understand? The pregnant woman with MS should have a follow-up visit in the third trimester to discuss postpartum management strategies to decrease her risk of a postpartum relapse. Risk factors for postpartum relapses include disability before pregnancy, relapses before and during pregnancy, as well as discontinuation of certain medications. Women with MS should be encouraged to exclusively breastfeed, as this has been associated with reduced risk of postpartum relapses, especially in the first six months after delivery, and has numerous health benefits to the infant and mother. 
Injectable therapies like glutaramir acetate and beta interferons appear to be compatible with breastfeeding, although they may not reduce the risk of early postpartum relapses. For women with more active MS and at higher risk of a postpartum relapse, treatment with certain monoclonal antibody therapies like rituximab could be considered while breastfeeding after discussion of the risks and benefits. Dr. Kristen Crisco from the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for sharing your insight and expertise in this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. Thank you so much for having me and discussing this important topic. For e-multiple sclerosis review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ems.dkb.com. E-multiple sclerosis review is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated, the Genzyme Organization, Celgene Corporation, and Genentech. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-multiple sclerosis review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.